when you get saved, you receive the mind of Christ. That is a new capacity to see and understand the things of the kingdom of God, a new ability to comprehend and to embrace God's truth. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 7 of our study of the Book of Romans, and in the second half of this epistle, many a believer has likely been able to associate with the experiences that the Apostle Paul describes, that of being born again and knowing what to do and not doing it or knowing what not to do but doing it anyway. It's the struggle between our new nature and our old fleshly self. And that's the topic of our study today, entitled, The Battle Within. Two men died and they stood at the pearly gates. Don't you like those theologically corrupt pearly gate jokes? And they meet St. Peter and they said, we want to come in. And Peter says, well, we have room for only one more person. Which of you is the more humble? You get it? No, you all are. Come on, wake up. It's a rainy day. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Paul is in humility truly saying that in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now remember the word flesh, socks, can have different meanings depending on the way it is used. There are some words in Greek, like in English, that in every context, in every usage, only means one thing. There are other words in English that can mean different things in different contexts. The word pool, do we mean a carpool or a swimming pool or the game of pool you shoot? Well, the context will determine it. And that's the way it is with this word, flesh. Context determines its meaning. And it's used in a number of different ways. Sometimes in Scripture, it's used to refer to the literal flesh that covers your skeleton. God uses it that way in the book of Revelation. We're at the end of the battle of Armageddon. God calls His vultures and they come from all over the earth. And the Bible says they will eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both great both free men and slaves, both small and great. On occasion, sometimes the word flesh is used in the Bible to describe the whole physical portion of man. There's a body that is your human space suit that you walk in. There's the real you on the inside that is your spirit or your soul, the immaterial portion. But sometimes flesh is used to describe the physical dimension of man. And so there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They were asleep. Their bodies were tired. Paul likewise said to the Corinthian church that when we came into Macedonia, our flesh, our bodies had no rest. The word flesh can also be used in the Bible to refer to one's human ancestry, their human lineage. Paul has already used it in that way in Romans 1 where in the introduction he describes the Lord Jesus and he describes him as a descendant of David according to the flesh. That is, he's the Messiah and that he comes from the right tribe and from the right family, just as God had prophesied in the Old Testament. Paul in Romans 9 will describe his kinsmen according to the flesh, referring to his Jewish brothers and sisters. 
The word flesh can also be used in the Bible to describe someone who evaluates another person just outwardly, by outward appearance, from a worldly point of view. Paul uses it that way in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. One translation says, no one according to a worldly point of view. Though Paul will go on to say there was a time when that's how I evaluated Christ, and that's why he persecuted his church. Jesus uses the word in that way in John 8 of the Pharisees who hated him. He said, you people judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. He's telling them that they judge merely from outward perspective, though he didn't judge people in that fashion. Because God doesn't look just at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so in their unbelief, they evaluated the facts and they disdained and hated him. And people do this all the time. They evaluate, they judge you without a full set of facts. So in the Bible, in the New Testament, it can refer to your physical skin. It can refer to your entire body, to your ancestry, to your outward appearance. But most often in the Bible, in almost every instance, 96% of the time, it is used of the fallen, sinful nature within. There is absolutely nothing good, Paul says, in that old, fallen, sinful nature. But because Paul had been saved, because he had a new nature, in the old NAS it says the wishing is present in me, and the new NAS that most of you are reading, it says the willing is present in me, in the uh, ESV and in the Southern Baptist Bible it says the desire is in me. There's a new want to, there's a new desire in me. Now when you become a Christian, you now have two capacities. You see, the fallen, unsaved man only has one capacity. He can only work and function out of the deadness of his soul. He may use his conscience for a guide, but often the calibration of the conscience becomes seared and distorted and out of whack through repeated sin. But when you're saved, you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You are made alive, and you have two capacities a capacity for good, and a capacity for evil. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the book of Galatians. You're in Romans. Go through First and Second Corinthians, and then you'll come to Galatians. Galatians, and look, if you will, at chapter 5. I want you to see this text. I think it will help us in understanding chapter 7 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, and look, if you will, at verse 16. Paul exhorts believers. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He's speaking again of the sinful nature, and some of your translations render it that way. But it is the word flesh, sarks. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. So as we studied in chapter 6, the old man, the flesh, the sinful nature is not eradicated. It is not dissolved when you get saved. There are people who say that, who say, now that I'm saved, I no longer sin. Not only is that unbiblical, it's dishonest because they know it is not true. However, as we grow in Jesus Christ, the flesh more and more is brought under the control of God the Holy Spirit. 
And he tells us that there's a sharp opposition here between the flesh and our new nature governed by the spirits. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, the Bible teaches that there are three enemies that wage war against the child of God. And the Bible teaches that there are three advocates that deal with those three enemies. We deal with this, by the way, in the discovery class, our 40-week discipleship course. God the Father is the principal advocate in dealing with the world or what we would call the world system. On the one hand, the Bible can say, for God so loved the world. On the other hand, God says, do not love the world. When he says that in 1 John, he's talking about the world system, its value system that's opposed to God. And so Jesus, in praying to God the Father in the high priestly prayer, speaks of those that he has saved out of the world. In James, the apostle will describe the fact that friendship with the world is enmity to be at odds with God, speaking there, of course, of the Father. So God the Father is our special advocacy, advocate in dealing with the world. God the Son is the special adversary in dealing with the devil. And so throughout the Word of God, we see the Lord Jesus in His opposition to the devil. And we see how the devil opposes the Son of God like no one else. Throughout the Old Testament, he tries to destroy the Jewish people. He tries to corrupt the Davidic line. Even the Lord Jesus, when he's born through Herod, he seeks to have him massacred and killed. He wants to get rid of Christ, and he still wants to destroy the Jewish people because God is going to bring the second coming of Christ through the nation of Israel. We see him trying to overthrow the Lord Jesus at the temptation, but of course, he fails miserably. But the Lord Jesus is our special adversary against the devil. And so he said, for the Son of Man came for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. But the Bible teaches while the Bible, while the Father is the chief adversary against the world and the Son against the devil, the Spirit is the one who helps us with the flesh. And that's what this verse is reminding us of. For the flesh sets itself up against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The two are in opposition to one another so that you won't do the things that you please. And so the unbeliever, while he may feel a tension, he doesn't feel it in the same way the child of God does. He has a conscience that God gave all men when God wrote his law on the hearts of men. And so the law of God is a reflection of God's character. And so his conscience, as Romans 2.15 teaches, either praises him or condemns him unless it has become calloused and insensitive and hard and corrupt and even where he can develop what the Bible calls an evil conscience, where a man calls good evil and he calls evil good. But while he finds a ping initially in his conscience, it's nothing what the believer feels because we have been regenerated. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell us and he revitalizes our conscience. He awakens us and he shows us the way the flesh lurks where it's ready to jump out and to take advantage of you. And he will teach you and show you how it is that you do not have to yield to him. All right, that's the condition. Now, secondly, if you're taking notes beyond the condition 
of Paul, I want us to think about the conflict of the Apostle Paul. Let's think about the conflict. Look now, if you will, at verse 15. He said, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. No wonder people have argued this passage to say that Paul is describing himself before he was saved. Surely, they would say, the great apostle never struggled with sin, but this is the language of struggle, of defeat, of agony, of temptation. And the truth of the matter is, is that when you become a Christian, the battle does not end. In fact, it just simply begins. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. You say, Pastor, you're reading my diary. I mean, how many times have you said that? And then he repeats himself. Notice in verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil I do not want. That's an incredible statement. Paul had not done what some Christians have done. They don't, Paul never made peace with sin. He struggled with it. Paul never came to the point in his life where he said, oh, I'm only human. This is just the way it is. I guess I'll have to be this way until I get into heaven. No, Paul was determined to live righteously. And so what was the cause of this conflict? Was the problem the law of God? No, he told us that the law of God is holy and good. Verse 16, he said, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. The problem is not with God's holy commandment. The problem is with me. So verse 17, he says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Is Paul in this verse making an excuse for his sin? Has he made peace with it where he says, well, it's not my fault. The problem is my sin nature. Actually, he's taking responsibility. He is admitting that he is sinful. The unbeliever would never admit this kind of sinful corruption. He might say, well, God understands my faults, or God's awful forgiving, or everybody does it, or I'm just human. Adam said it was Eve, Lord. Eve said it was the serpent, Lord. But Paul, in effect, is saying, I am living with a new me that has a new propensity that wants to do what is right, that wants to please God, but I still have this old fleshly self that wants to do what is wrong. And Paul lives with this tension, and he's describing this tension for us. Again, in verse 20, notice, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul is saying, the problem is not with my new spiritual man. The problem is, is not with the real me, the new me, the risen Christ who lives in me. The problem is sin that dwells in me. I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 all the way through this paragraph of Scripture. Paul is describing himself as a saved person. And he's describing what happens to a lot of people when they get saved. They say, all right, God, I love you. Thank you so much for saving me. I want to serve you now with all my heart. I, I want to serve you as hard as I serve the devil. I will serve you as well as I can. I will do everything, God, to love you and to obey you. And then we fall flat on our faces. Well, you say the problem with Paul was that he was too weak. No, the problem with Paul and the problem with many of us is that we are not weak enough. 
He was still trying, and he needed to be trusting. Remember, when Paul was born again, he wasn't born again as a mature believer. He was born again as a baby in Christ. He spent three years ever before he even began his ministry. And when we understand that the Christian life is not hard, but that it is impossible, when we come to the place where with Paul we say, wretched man that I am, when we come to that shout of wretchedness, then the liberty that Paul described in chapter 6 can be ours in chapter 8. That it is all by the grace of God. And so Paul is giving a testimony of this deep, deep struggle that he had. Now again, we need to understand that when we are saved, the old fallen sinful nature is not eradicated. It is still there. And the devil will tempt that fallen nature because now you are at war with the devil. When you are asleep in the arms of the devil, you are no threat to his kingdom. But when you get saved, truly saved, then if you start growing and changing and reflecting Christ, then you will do the one thing that the devil is trying to do. The devil is trying to take as many people to hell with him as he can, and you will interfere with that plan by rescuing them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. And so Paul recognizes, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And the flesh... The old self can show itself even in religious ways. We can get dressed up and come to church on Sunday. We can usher. We can serve in the nursery. We can sing in the choir. We can teach a Sunday school class, but in our own power. And it's not until we realize that it has to be done through Christ. Jesus said it in these words, I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me and I in him. He bears he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Paul wants us to see. That because of our fallen sinful nature, that you can do absolutely nothing good. I didn't say you can't be involved in all kinds of activity. Some of you maybe studied the Bible yesterday. Maybe some of you uh, cleaned your house or cut your grass or changed the diaper on the little baby. You can do all kinds of things. But unless it is done through and in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a big zero. It means very, very little. And so we, we get saved and we say, oh, I want to serve the Lord. And we go out in our own strength and we fall flat on our face. And we come back and we say, well, God, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to serve you, God. I'm, I'm going to try harder this time. And we go out and we do it again and we fall flat on our face. We try it again and again and again, and we fall and we fall and we fall and we fall and we fall. And after the while, the devil says, you're an embarrassment to Christianity. You ought to stay home. You shouldn't even come to church. So that's the condition. There's the resulting conflict. Now I want you to notice the conclusion. The conclusion. Look now at Paul's conclusion beginning in verse 21. He said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Again, these are not the words of a lost man. These can only be the words of a saved man. Someone, as he says in chapter 8 and verse 7, who is willing to be subject to the law of God. See, an unbeliever would never confess, as in verse 16, 
that God's standard of holiness is good and that his heart wants to do it. An unbeliever would never say these kinds of things about the law of God. An unbeliever would never say, nothing good dwells in me. Actually, he'd probably say, do you know how good I am, pastor? I ask people all the time. Why should God let you into heaven? They often tell me, you know how good I am? You know what a good father I am? What a good mother I am? You know, I try to keep the golden rule and follow the Ten Commandments. And God knows that I'm a pretty good guy. An unbeliever would never concur with God's law that says, there is none righteous, no, not one. We just read in verses 15 and 19 that he hates sin. An unbeliever would never say, I'm doing the very thing I hate. An unbeliever doesn't hate sin. He looks for it. He plans for it. He saves up for it. He saves his money every Friday and Saturday night to go out and get wasted. Because he likes sin. He applauds sin. The only thing he doesn't like are the negative consequences that sin brings. He hates getting caught. He hates the brokenness and the turmoil that sin can bring. He hates the disease of sexual sin. He hates the penalties and punishments that are built in. But he doesn't really hate sin. Only the blood-bought, born-again child of God comes to the point where he hates sin because the blood-born child of God only wants to honor the name of God, not dishonor him. Now, if you don't carefully interpret these verses, you will misapply them. Paul is describing himself as a believer because he's been regenerated by the Spirit of God. He wants to do good. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And now in verses 22 and 23, he demonstrates an example of how this works. Notice, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In the inner man, that is in the new man, as he calls it in Colossians, in contrast to the old man or the old self in chapter 6. He joyfully concurs that God's standard is perfect. You could paraphrase it. I love the law of God from the bottom of my heart. My new inner man loves the commandments. I was speaking to a man this week who just loves his booze and loves his alcohol. And his wife's trying to help him and says, you know, he goes out with all those Marines and he gets on a loop. And let me just say to a lot of the Marines here, I know how widespread alcohol is in the Marine Corps. And for you to take a stand as a man of God will take some spiritual steel in your spine to be able to do that. But men will admire you they will look up to you, and you will have a platform in which to say something. So he goes out, and he has three or four beers, and he starts getting buzzed. Used to take one beer. That's why God doesn't want you to have the first one, because you're to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. But now it takes three or four. I said, well, maybe the problem is, is not simply the weakness of the flesh. Maybe the problem is you've never been regenerated, because I don't hear you saying, I hate this. What I hear you saying is, I like it. I look forward to it. Maybe that's because you've never been saved. And so you don't joyfully concur in your inner man that you love God's law. Look at verse 23, he adds. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, 
which is in my members, my mind, describing his regenerated mind. Remember 1 Corinthians, when you get saved, you receive the mind of Christ. That is a new capacity to see and understand the things of the kingdom of God, a new ability to comprehend and to embrace God's truth. And as Romans 12 will teach us, as your mind is renewed through your study of Scripture, that increases and it expands. He's saying my new nature wants to do one thing, but my old nature, described here as the members of my body, wants to do something different. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. An unbeliever cannot say he becomes a prisoner. He's already a prisoner. But Paul says, on the one hand, there's a part of me that wants to do what is right. But on the other hand, there's a part that wants to yield. Wretched man that I am. Not I was, but I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? He's taking responsibility for himself. I was counseling someone recently on marriage, and I said, the problem is is that two people love you. Two people love you so much, that's the problem. I said, your wife loves you to death, and you love yourself too much. He had an unhealthy love of self. And some people have an unhealthy love of self, so they never take responsibility for self. It's always someone else's fault. Wretched father that I had. Wretched mother that I had. Wretched education that I had. Wretched financial help that I didn't have. Wretched parents that I have. Wretched children that I have, wretched professor that I have, wretched boss that I have, but not wretched man that I am. We have to take responsibility for self. There'll never, ever, ever, ever be the cry of victory in chapter 8 until we come to this cry of wretchedness. And so they're saying, it's not my problem, it's the culture's problem, it's my parents' problem, it's my career's problem, it's somebody else's problem, but certainly not mine. Now, that is the conclusion of the unbeliever, but that is not to be the conclusion of the child of God. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Not what will set me free. I have the pronoun circled in my Bible. Who will set me free? Some of your translations say, who will deliver me? Another translation says, who will rescue me? It's an interesting Greek word. It was used in the first century to refer to an act that a soldier would take on behalf of his fellow soldier where he heard the cry of his fellow soldier and he went to his rescue to deliver him from the hands of the enemy. Paul is picturing himself here in enemy hands. It's a beautiful word picture that everyone who read it in the first century saw. And in those words, he understood what Pogo said in the old comic strip. We have found the enemy, and the enemy is us. Who will rescue me? Jesus Christ is the deliverer. The answer to this body of death is Christ's body of death. He bore our shame. He groaned our death. He broke sin's power, and one day he will deliver me forever from sin. So how do we overcome the desire to do what is wrong and not do what we ought? We'll find out tomorrow as we continue our study entitled, The Battle Within. 
If you would like to hear this message from Romans chapter 7 in its entirety, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, or use the Search the Scriptures app, available at the Apple Store and Google Play Store, and you can listen to the entire message as well as any of the other messages in our Romans series. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at the battle within. Join us then as we search the scriptures.